0: This is Take Care. Thanks for being with us for a conversation on health and wellness. I'm Katherine Loper. And I'm Jason Smith. Richard Louv is a journalist and author who explores our connection to nature regularly in his work. His latest book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Richard, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you. You've written a number of books about how nature can impact our lives. Can we just start with an overview of what your research shows about how nature impacts our lives?
1: Well, sure. The new book is Our Wild Calling, and it's about our connection to animals. The first of these four books that I've done on this issue is Last Child in the Woods, and that's the book where I introduced the concept uh of nature deficit disorder, and that really took off. The phrases entered several languages, much to my surprise. And there's really a movement out there to connect children, but also families and whole communities to nature. And that's happening at the very moment. The disconnect between humans and other life forms is more fragile than ever. Ironically, more wild animals are moving into cities more than ever.
0: How does nature affect our health specifically?
1: Well, there's been a lot of research. When I wrote Last Child in the Woods, I could find about 60 studies, good studies to cite, but that has grown now to around a thousand studies, almost all of which point in the same direction, which is psychological health, physical health, cognitive functioning, our ability to learn and and, uh, create, All of those things are very enhanced by more time spent in nature, and that's true in schools, that's true in our neighborhoods, that's even true for businesses. There's a whole new field of biophilic design that is emerging to create workplaces and schools and other places that incorporate nature, specifically to improve the ability to pay attention and the ability to produce. The productivity goes up, sick time goes down. So it ranges from... Physical health being improved more than the same amount of calories burned in an indoor gym on a treadmill compared to being outdoors. The outdoors exercise, nature-specific exercise, people get even better than they do when they're on uh, treadmills in an indoor gym. But attention deficit disorder, that's some of the most impressive research there. And so many kids have been diagnosed with that, and sometimes it's true. But a lot of times they need something else. They've been cooped up in these cubicles that we, that we call school rooms. And the minute many of these kids get outdoors, the teachers report, I've heard this line over and over again from teachers all over the country. They say, when I get the kids outdoors into a natural setting to learn, the troublemaker becomes the leader, not just well-behaved, the leader. So I wonder how many leaders we're wasting by keeping them inside all the time.
0: Yeah. In your research, did you find a reason why people just do better when they're outside? Is it just as simple as you go outside and you feel better?
1: Well, there are some theories. We don't know why. There's the theory that E.O. Wilson at Harvard has, which is the biophilia hypothesis, which holds that we are hardwired. We're genetically wired to have an affiliation with the rest of nature, and we need it. There's another theory about attention retention, And that holds that the kind of attention that we use when we're paying attention to a screen all the time is fine, except you burn out. And that the best way to relieve that burnout is to use another kind of attention, to use other parts of the brain. And the researchers there say that the best place to do that, the best way to do that is simply go outside in some kind of natural setting. And that gives the brain time to recharge. It doesn't take very long. So there are theories. My theory also is uh, that people who study, the scientists who study the human senses, no longer talk about five senses. They talk about conservatively nine or ten. And some of these scientists say that human beings have as many as 30 or more human senses. They all have names. And that we're spending a lot of our time blocking out those senses We're creating learning environments for kids and working environments for ourselves in which we stare at a screen and in order to concentrate on it, we quit paying attention. We quit using all of those senses. In fact, we purposefully block most of them out. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to me to be the very definition of being less alive. And I don't know any parents that want their kids to be less alive.
0: Well, your latest book focuses on the coexistence between animals and humans and how that can transform our lives. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, it really does focus on animals because, in part, of all of those studies I mentioned, the thousand studies approximately, almost all of them focus on the impact of green space. Very few of them focus on the impact of wild animals. Now, we do have research that I report on in the new book about the effect of domesticated animals on us, our dogs and cats and companion animals of other kinds. What we don't have is what happens to us when that raccoon walks through the backyard or that coyote that we encounter. Yes, there may be some danger, but I believe, based on about 100 stories that are collected from people, that yes, while danger may involve be involved in some of these wild animal encounters, the payoff is extraordinary. People really do report, you know, like lightning, a sense of awe and wonder, and their senses come alive.
0: You talked to a lot of people for this book, including theologians, and you just mentioned something interesting, talking about how this is often a sign of something bigger. Can you talk a little bit about the spiritual connection between humans and animals? Human beings have talked about that forever. We don't talk about it much anymore, but
1: certainly our ancestors talked about that. They told stories around the fire of the encounters they had that day. Sometimes they acted them out. Sometimes they danced the story or became the bear, in a sense. And they felt much more connected to something larger through other animals. I tell the story of an encounter I had. I was in my boat, electric motor, very quiet, and I noticed on the shore a couple of vultures eating a dead carp. I moved up really cautiously and quietly to them, and they were not vultures. They were two giant golden eagles. And so for quite a while, I just watched them, and they watched me as they ate. Their eyes never left mine. And I felt something happen. I, don't, I can't speak for the eagles. They might just have been wondering if I was uh, edible. But I went home and I told my younger son, who was home from college, about that. And I said, you know, Matthew, whoever I say I am, I'm not. Whoever I was in those moments is actually who I am. And I don't have the words to describe it. This is beyond human language. I did a lot of research on uh, how older religions and uh, spiritual teachers and indigenous people view that thing that happens. And they talk about it often, and certainly the people that tell their stories in the book, talk about it. One way to describe it is uh, Martin Buber, the great intellectual, I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. He wrote a famous essay called I Thou, and Thou. He was talking about people, what happens between us. Basically he said that you and I don't exist. What exists is between us and that without that we don't really exist and that's the relationship. And he meant it a little differently than we usually use that word. He thought of it as a kind of electricity that some people call God. That's what I felt. And that's what just about everybody that I interviewed or collected their stories or they sent me their stories, everything from hardcore scientists to teachers to kids, they all described that one way or another about that change they felt. And once you have that feeling, and most of us did when we were little, you want to have it again. And it has an effect on your life.
0: there's been a lot of research that's shown that animals like dogs can help young people, teenagers with depression and anxiety. And we've seen more and more people bringing service animals along with them or comfort animals. And a lot of college campuses hold anti-stress events for students, and they bring in dogs for people to pet. How can interacting more with animals help these feelings of loneliness or depression?
1: Well, uh, in Our Wild Calling, I talk about the epidemic of loneliness in the world. Medical folks are saying now that loneliness may be about to surpass obesity as a cause of early death. And that's an extraordinary thing. And they're not just talking about suicide. They're talking about all the diseases that are associated with human isolation. And this is a new phenomenon. And one of the studies on this shows that the younger the generation, the more lonely it is. Now that's astonishing because it used to be the other way around and suddenly it's flipped. What does it say about a society in which the youngest of us are the loneliest? I think that that loneliness can be attributed to a lot of things, too much time on Facebook, all the things you usually hear. But in our wild calling, I suggest that it's rooted in a much deeper loneliness, which is species loneliness. The urban parks that have the best benefits for human psychological health happen to be the ones with the highest biodiversity, with the most plants and animals. That's no accident. I think that as a species we are desperate to not feel alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets when Stephen Hawking tells us that might not be a good idea to find? We're desperate to feel this sense of connection with other life And increasingly, we don't get it. And I think unless we turn that around, two things are going to happen. One is that we are going to become, by far, the loneliest species. We may already be that. And the other thing is that we'll lose our connection to other animals, and we will not protect them. So it becomes a vicious cycle at that point. The students at your campus who are doing that intuitively know that. I mean, we know that we have this species' loneliness. We're lonely for other people, but we also have this need for a connection to other animals. And that may be the fastest growing form of self-medication that's not drug-related in our culture right now, is our connection to animals. There's more dogs than there ever have been. There are many of these
0: organizations cropping up to connect people to other animals. You're calling for a transformation of how we view our environment. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why, why do we need to change the way we view our environment?
1: Well, because the way we're viewing it now is not working
0: out well. I mean, we're destroying the
1: very thing that nurtures us. And I think that this is a new stage that environmentalism, conservation needs to move into. Increasingly, environmentalism, conservation talks about data, the number of inches the sea rises, The number of endangered species. It's always about the numbers. Biology in school has become more math than life for many kids. And there's nothing wrong with that and nothing wrong with microbiology, but starting at the college level and on down, traditional field studies and biological knowledge has been pushed aside for creating things in the lab that we can commercialize. So I think that unless we find our heart again, in a sense, and that heart is connected to other life, then the environmental movement will die. In our wild calling, I call that thing that happened between me and the eagles and between so many people and the animals they encounter or know, I call that the habitat of the heart. I think there are two habitats. There's a physical habitat that we pay a lot of attention to and try to protect, as we should. But then there's this other habitat, the habitat of the heart. And if one of those two habitats goes, so does the other one. If you sense a sense of urgency in my voice, it's there. We need to pay attention.
0: You uh, talked about your previous book called Last Child in the Woods, and that was about children and nature. And you mentioned the term nature deficit disorder. And I'm curious, how do you think we can combat this nature deficit? Specifically, how would you recommend we go about reconnecting with, with nature and with animals?
1: I think the two words that summarize both our wild calling and my other books on this, including Last Child, are pay attention. Pay attention to the animal that walks by your window. Pay attention to the life around you. Pay attention even in the densest of urban neighborhoods. Pay attention to the life that's there that's non-human, both plant and animal. But then take action. Make sure your family's getting outdoors. Make sure your school has a green schoolyard or a natural learning area. Cities can be transformed. I believe that cities can be engines of biodiversity, not the enemy of them. We can do this on our roofs by planting native species in our backyards, by creating a, what Doug Ptolemy in Delaware calls a homegrown national park starting in our backyards just by planting native species that brings back the food chain, that brings back butterfly migration routes, bird migration routes. And in taking action, we actually cure ourselves of this nature deficit disorder, which hurts us, which hurts our psychological health, our physical health, and I think also our spiritual health.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you.